Chapter Four of the Master Knot of Human Fate. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. The Master Knot of Human Fate by Ellis Meredith. Chapter Four. How gladly would I meet mortality my sentence and be earth insensible! How glad would lay me down as in my mother's lap! Milton. The corn hardened and the wheat ripened and was harvested in truly primeval fashion. Adam cut the wheat with a scythe and Robin followed him, binding it as best she could. They shocked it together and then began hauling it to the barn with the horses and bobsleds, their only vehicle. The stacking was weary work and progressed slowly. Adam watched his co-worker toil over the sheaves and then took them from her and pitched them on the stack haphazard. "'You shall not bother over it any more,' he said. "'Not if we live on hominy all winter. Have you ever been in Mexico? Well, Hawaii was called the land of Poco Tempo, but Mexico was the land of Manana. There isn't any work there for the work's sake. I mean, there wasn't, and we can take a lesson from them.' We need not hurry. The legislature will not meet this winter, and there will be no grand opera before spring. Daisy and Lily shall do our work for us. We will find a bit of hard, smooth ground, and then we will not muzzle the cows that tread out the grain. Willingly, gasped Robin, climbing down from her slippery eminence on top of the load of grain. But do you think we are going to have any winter? "'That is preeminently one of the things that no fellow can find out,' he answered. "'In a dream you are likely to have any kind of weather, and on a submerged planet we have no precedents at hand to tell us what to expect. By replanting the vegetables right along we have had a perpetual crop. "'As long as we have this kind of weather things will grow, and I suppose we would better let them.' Shut in as we are, it doesn't seem likely that any very fearful winds are apt to trouble us. And if there is a wet season, on this slope we shall have good drainage. If the worst comes to the worst, there's the tunnel. Could you make that cheerful and homelike? Robin smiled rather sadly. It will do to put the grain in, she said, and they walked on silently. The spot finally selected for the threshing floor was brushed as clean as twig brooms would make it, and the wheat spread out upon it. Adam and Lassie drove the cows over it leisurely, and between times Adam experimented on a flail. When he finally had one that answered the purpose, and found he could use it without fracturing his skull, the cows were released, and he went on with the work. Seated on a boulder close by, her sombrero tipped well over her eyes, Robin fanned the grain and converted it into a coarse cracked wheat with a venerable coffee mill. "'I will make you a Mexican mill when I get through with this,' said Adam. "'But you cannot use it, because it is too hard work. I shall have to be the miller. It is a rather simple affair, and dates from before the days of Noah.' 
It is made with two stones, sandstone preferred, the lower of which is hollowed out bowl fashion with a hole in the center. The upper stone is rounding and fits in the bowl and has a hole in it about four inches from the edge in which a stout wooden handle is inserted with which to turn it. The two stones are ground together until they become smooth. Then they are placed on four other stones as rests and a blanket or cloth is spread underneath to catch the meal. The grain is poured around the edge of the upper stone and works down. It makes a very tolerable flour. "'How handy you are,' she said. "'Isn't it a good thing we hadn't civilized the whole world to such a degree that only patent high-grade flour was used? Where should we be now without the simple devices of the good people of the Stone Age and their survivors on whom we looked down with so much scorn. The snapping of the corn was an easier matter, and it was piled in the tunnel till they should be ready to shell it. Then Adam did what he calls his fall plowing, and left the bare brown sod to lie fallow. So far as possible, they had retained the manners and customs of the world that had left them. There was a tolerable supply of clothing and a good deal more household linen than could have been expected. Robin concluded that the owners of the cabin had not been long married and the bride, knowing to what kind of a place she was coming, had thought more of her house than of herself. All the feminine garments had to be refashioned. Robin made her skirts short enough for mountain climbing and dreading the time when her one pair of shoes should give out, she wore sandals fashioned from yucca leaves by Adam's clever fingers. As the hairpins lost themselves, she braided her hair in a long queue, the curling ends of which fell far below her waist. The little house was kept as neat and clean as if it were headquarters for all the labor-saving inventions in the world, and their meals were as well served as if a corps of servants had been in attendance. They were simple and often a little monotonous, as meals must be where there is nothing save what grows on one's own plantation. They had no tea, coffee, sugar, spices, or foreign fruits. However, the hardship of manual labor and plain food would cure most cases of dyspepsia, and they did not suffer. One day, early in December, Robin woke to the consciousness of a steady drip, drip of rain, accompanied by an indescribably mournful wind. In the other room she heard Adam piling on the logs and shivered. Perhaps the winter had come. It had been hard enough when there was plenty of work and the free outdoor life. If they should become prisoners, how should they... How would he endure it? She dressed quickly and met his cheery good morning in kind, and over their breakfast they discussed the possibility of this storm being the first of many. They decided that they must get the corn into such shape that the tunnel would be available for the hapless cattle, or even for themselves if need be. We will go up there and shell corn all day, said Adam. It isn't really cold, and you can wrap up a bit. 
I wish I had thought to take a lot of stone into the tunnel to build a bin at the end to put the corn in. I don't know how we are to manage it. She disappeared into the bedroom and came back presently with a few grain sacks. When Adam opened the door, he was nearly ready to abandon his plan. "'You will be wet through,' he said. "'I cannot let you go.' "'Then you cannot go either,' she answered. "'But I must,' he said. She was standing by him, hardly reaching his shoulder, the sacks over her head. Catching her up in his arms, he banged the door behind them, and ran up the slope to the tunnel, where he deposited her laughing and shaking the water from her curly hair. As he had said, it was not cold, and they sat down near the mouth of the tunnel, turned the tops of their sacks back over corn cobs, and shelled the corn in silence. At last a little sigh from Robin made Adam look up quickly. Her hands were bleeding. Robin! he cried angrily. How can you be so cruel? I don't want you to do this work. There is no need. I forgot to watch you. Besides, I know you are tired. You did not sleep last night. I heard you moving about. Then you did not sleep either, she responded quickly. He flushed through the tan, and scooping some dry leaves together into a bed, took off his coat and folded it for a pillow. "'Lie down and rest a little now,' he said, "'while I go down to the house and see what I can find for lunch. Then you can have a good sleep this afternoon.' He was gone several minutes, and when he came back with some sandwiches in a tin bucket and a dozen scarlet radishes dripping in his hand, he stopped appalled. Robin was at the extreme end of the tunnel, sitting on the ground, laughing and crying and talking extravagant nonsense. Had she really gone mad at last? Adam put down the bucket and walked toward her unsteadily. She did not stir, but went on chattering in the same absurd way until she saw him. Then she cried excitedly, "'Oh, look!' It's kittens, real little tame kittens, though their mother won't come near me yet. She is over in that corner. Adam saw her green eyes, and though distrustful, she was not unfriendly. Emptying the bucket, he ran down to the sheds and came back with some milk, which he poured into the top of the pail and set down before the kittens. They lapped it eagerly and as the two human beings withdrew discreetly, the cat crept out of her corner and joined in the feast. When it was over, Robin took possession of one tiny ball of fur and Adam of another while they made their own meal. Then Robin curled up among the dead leaves and slept like a child. It was growing dusk when Adam awoke from his daydreams. The tunnel looked like a small grain elevator. On one side Robin still slept, but the old cat was nestled contentedly at her feet, and the kittens were playing sleepily over her. "'What is she dreaming?' Adam asked wearily. "'All day I have sat here and dreamed dreams that can never come true. 
I know it. I feel it. I told her a year, but I am as sure now as I shall be in six years that there is no hope. The watchfire is out tonight, the first night in eight months. I shall relight it for her sake. Not that she is any more deceived than I, but she will be happier to believe me still hopeful. What will be the end of it all? How can it end? The same old way, came a sleepy voice from the leaves. With the got married and lived happily ever after formula. She sat up and rubbed her eyes and stretched lazily to the discomfort of the kittens who retreated hastily. As she struggled to her feet and a knowledge of her surroundings, her face changed pitifully, and she sat down again and cried miserably. "'Oh, it was so real,' she sobbed. "'I can see it now. We were back in the old house, in the library, don't you remember it? And Walter was at the piano, and Louis had just asked me how to finish his last story. Did I answer out loud? Oh, which is the dream, for that was as real as this. Adam stood and watched her. He tried not to think of that apropos answer. He heard the beating, steady patter of the rain and the lowing of the cows, and there was not even a star in heaven to look at him from its accustomed place with a friendly, twinkling promise for the future. There was nothing left. So far as he was concerned, the earth was without form and void. There was nothing to wait or hope for. There was nothing to live for, neither cheerful yesterdays nor confident tomorrows. What was the use in living? He looked down at the slender creature lying outstretched almost at his feet, shaken with the agony of long-repressed grief, and then at his long, muscular hands. How little it would take to end it all for both of them. A mist came over his eyes, and he stooped, his hands outstretched toward her white throat. They fell on the rounded curve of her shoulder. He checked the caress as he checked the other impulse, and shook her instead. Let us go home, he said. They went into the storm. End of chapter four. Recording by Roger Moline.